It's not. It's down in New Zealand. So I'm in New Zealand, I'm not Australian. It's not going to hate Australian. Australia is here. Australia is here. Today we're going to talk a little bit about um, disciples and um, anti-fat prejudice more generally. Um, I've got too many slides, so I'm probably going to race through some of these slides and focus on the ones which I think are more important if we start running out of time. If you've got any questions throughout, then uh, don't hesitate to, uh, to ask me. I just want to thank uh, Rachel for uh, inviting me along here as well uh, uh, to give a talk. It's sort of a topic in which there's not a lot of interest really more broadly outside the disciplines of probably education and um, and social psychology. So it is good to see um, multidisciplinary groups such as yourself um, interested in this. Okay, so what do we know about uh, anti-fat prejudice? I did a search um, of the research papers out in stigma and prejudice generally. I had a look at uh, to see how many papers have been in the area. For racism, there's close to 3,000 papers that have been out since 2000. Sexism, around 2,500. But for anti-fat prejudice, it's only about 180 research papers. So it's fairly uh, under-researched as a research area. Um, and I don't wonder sometimes if it's because people just don't think it's a very important topic. But I think most people who have been through um, public school or any school system would have known either a child who's teased for being fat or being called fat and called fat. So we all know that some of those are the most derided and harmful names that you could actually encounter. It's not fairly right, but there's just not been a lot going on. In terms of reducing prejudice, there's only been 16 states even looking at trying to reduce them. Most of these have been of any good quality, but not many most controlled trials in any way. So really it's a lack of research in Thought we'd start back uh, historically at what um, one of the fathers of medicine said about obese people. Obese people are those desiring to lose weight should perform hard work before food. Meals should be taken after exertion while still panting from fatigue. They should moreover only eat once per day and take no bars. They sleep on a hard bed and walk naked as long as possible. <laughs> so <laughs> they had a good, a good starting point for how they should be treated, and uh, you know you might you might want to say that not being able to take baths and you know and uh, sleep on hard beds and walk naked was really setting them up for a history of brutal time. And fact, prejudice. Most research has been descriptive, such as finding different populations where no anti-fat prejudice is quite prominent. And uh, it's been a focus in the medical field, so looking at dietitians, doctors, and such. I can some data on that in a second. Uh, remains unclear what underpins any fat uh, or obesity prejudice. And I'm going to say why I think it's unclear in a second, in the sense that I think we come up with um, justifications for why we may vilify uh, people who are overweight or obese. However, I think they are justifications for perhaps some other underlying motive that we might have or uh, subconscious process we might have in place. And there's definitely a lack of um, research on consequences, um, such as what does exclusion contribute to health and physiological and the health impacts of being teased or being stigmatized. Um, though from reading um, the website and, and talking with Rachel, it sounds like um, the research group in here is certainly interested in social factors and, and um, sociological factors, which might be contributing to this. So that's, I think that's really exciting and really encouraging. So we still don't even know what you need to look like to be worthy of ridicule. 
So there's no studies identifying what body type you need to have, what you need to look like, before someone's going to call you fat so before someone's going to discriminate. Someone's going to have a go at you saying, why have you got those foods in your um, supermarket trolley when clearly you're obese and they look at your kids and things like this, which are commonly reported comments that we get from people who see Now we don't know what you need to look like. We don't know whether or not you have to be a BMI above 40. We don't need to know if you need to be dressed a certain way. We don't know where the fat has to be deposited. We do know that women tend to cop it more, cop the discrimination more than what males do. Males can be slightly overweight and then a little bit more salary. Females are less salary. Um, these are common images that we'll see in the media, so I've taken most of these from actual news sites, three of which are from BBC. So whenever there tends to be an article or something about obesity in the media, we're typically given negative images, um, strong acts, and, and um, therefore forcing our subjects to be driven a certain way as well. I don't know how you feel about seeing those images, maybe it evokes something in you then when you see those images, with displeasure or pleasure, or what isn't that interesting, or some sort of emotional reaction. We'll touch on that a little bit. It's a somewhat mixed stigma, obesity, and I, I say it's a stigma because those who do um, are well subject to ridicule really do see it as a stigma. It is a marking condition which marks you up physically. Can't be hidden easily, so unlike mental illness and alcoholism, pretty much everyone will know that you're overweight or obese, and that um, that you've got that you've got that. There's not much protection from the obesity placed upon that obese people. So unlike religion or race and gender, can have strong positive value or identity, you can't necessarily be honest. Let's just sit down. Cheers. Um, there's no specific uh, legislation in most countries protecting obesity discrimination, and obesity is seen as controllable by general public. We learn it very young, so here we have Harry Potter. Whoopsie. Here we have Harry Potter. The children are reading these stories and they're getting this fed to them very, at a very early age. I go to sleep to Harry Potter, I don't know if you do, but it's a great book to read to go to sleep. So Dudley had gotten a new computer. He had wanted not to, uh, a new computer he had wanted. Not to mention the second TV and racing bike. Why Dudley wanted a racing bike was a mystery to Harry, as Dudley was very fat and hated to exercise, unless of course it involved punching somebody. Dudley's favourite punching bag was Harry, but he couldn't often catch him. So straight off the, the satire and sort of um, an obese child as being angry, aggressive, lazy, demanding, greedy, and really, um, you know, telling children very young that this is the description of what a child is feeling at least. Later in the book, Hagrid put a spell on Dudley, which made him grow a pig star and said, Next turn him into a pig, but he was so much like a pig anyway, there wasn't much left to do. So if our children are being exposed to this at such an early age, and uh, in, in such popular uh, text and material, then it's little wonder that we start to develop this negativity very early in our life. Celebrities, I can't help but laugh at this joke despite extreme handicap bridges. A recent police study found that you're much more likely to get shot by a fat cop if you run. I can actually, I can actually imagine that. Uh, and that's why a, a very good comedian, Dennis Miller. But then we have Elizabeth Hurley, so I'd kill myself if I was a fat American. Because she didn't. Pardon? 
But she actually did adverts, I think. Elizabeth really actually did adverts for Burger King. I think one point time. Yeah. Reported attitudes. We'd overseas children at the ages of six. They've shown that figures of overweight, they get shown at figures of overweight children. They get asked to identify what they associate with, what um, descriptors they identify with those children. And they find that they find that these children as young as six identify lazy, stupid, cheats, lies, and ugly with them. And of course, if they've been reading Harry Potter, that makes good sense right now. Adult stereotypes are that they're slothful, gluttonous, lazy, smelly, and you all know this already because you've been referred to them practically with them. Obesity prejudice is increasing. So Latman Stunkard did this uh, a survey which was done been, been done 40 years ago by Albert Stunkard. And Janet decided, Janet and decided to redo this, and she found actually this thing that had got worse. Paul, uh, Paul Rebecca Paul from uh, Yale, had uh, also looked at discrimination uh, across the last decade and found more than 66% of this So, despite people or a great proportion of people becoming obese and overweight, it doesn't appear to be a more accepted condition or a more broad uh, point condition that we might expect. Um, myself and Janet Latter did a study, and this is including both US and New Zealand samples, to look at the creative measure, which is a universal measure of bias that we have, in order for us to allow to insert different names and different words for different groupings and target groups uh, in the prejudice measure. And in this case, we looked at um, the prejudice towards obesity versus anti Muslim versus anti gay sentiment. And we found that um, anti fat sentiment was much more likely to be expressed, so there was a higher prejudice within this group. Than there was against anti Muslim. Now, remember, this was in about 2006 when we actually collected the data. And this was at a time when anti Muslim sentiment in the States was quite high. So the fact that we feel more, either more prejudiced towards these people, or we feel more righteous and insane that we dislike of these people, we have this kind of experience. Discrimination and consequence of prejudice. So in employment settings, we find that overweight women paid up to 12% less than normal white female peers. Newest survey of midlife development. Overweight were 12 times more likely, obese response 37 times more likely, and severely obese response 100 times more likely than normal weight to report employment discrimination. In education, we found that oh, Crandall's found that parents were less likely to offer financial support for university for their overweight daughters, and we can discuss that later. And we're going to do a measure of implicit attitudes and maybe they'll get you some insights as to why it might occur. Perhaps they stereotype their daughters that they are very overweight as being nannies, as nurses, as those sorts of things, rather than as lawyers, things because of the socialisation that we might have in terms of what you need to look like in order to be a specific job or category. Canning and Mayer um, examined the university applications in the US and found that obese students were significantly less likely to be accepted. That's after accounting for academic records and performance in high school and all sorts of things as well. So it's a very strong you know, uh, prejudice and discrimination well. Studies in nurses, they found that studies, 63% uh, of nurses believed that obese people lack self-control, 24% viewed obese people as unsuccessful in life, and 43% as overindulgent, 22% said they were lazy, 48% felt uncomfortable treating obese people, and 31% um, would prefer not to care for them at all. And 33% thought that people had anger management problems. Of course, if you're being treated that way, and they're reporting these things about you, you may be a little bit pissed off with the treatment that you get in the hospital. The doctors have uh, looked at primary care physicians, and they see more than 50% of these patients as awkward, unattractive, ugly, and non compliant. 
33% characterised obese patients as weak mood, um, sloppy or lazy, mostly obese, obese largely as a lack of physical activity, which is of course what you see when you're reading TV as well. I want to qualify those comments though, and I want to qualify those comments by trying to take a more positive view as to why medical people may have this dislike of treating these people, being involved with these people. And it may be because they're not getting a job satisfaction from what they're doing, because typically when we look at weight loss trials, um, or if we look at um, treatment for obesity, it's rather unsuccessful. If you're a dietitian whose job is to help people lose weight, then you get all your satisfaction from observing that or from that happening, you get satisfaction from a person improvement. However, we know that it's within the, the current social environment and such that the reviews of randomised controlled trials show that, that we, don't, we aren't actually able to retain weight loss uh, after two years, pretty much it comes back to about zero. Um, although we're successful at losing weight initially, we gained it back. So it may actually be that you've got um, healthcare professionals who are frustrated and not being able to help the people, and it's not necessarily actually that they hate these people, it's just that they're frustrated and not being able to do their jobs with people who may be able to I threw this in here because I thought we might be bored with all the other slides, but I also sort of thought, hold it, it doesn't look out of place really. Um, do you prefer that to a skinny giraffe? I don't know. I don't mind that actually. It's somewhat funny, but um, I don't think it's open for ridicule in the same way in which a person uh, in society might be. Why do we not? Why do we think that that's okay? Yet when we see images of uh, morbidly obese people, we actually get a sense of disgust because we look like. And when I say we, I'm not saying us, we're good people. I'm saying the general population. Beyond the moral and human rights issues, there's uh, psychosocial and health issues involved with prejudicing and attitudes. Studies show obese persons avoid important health screening opportunities such as breast, cervical, or colorectal cancer um, screening. We and colleagues found that severely obese white women were significantly less likely to undergo cervical cancer screening after controlling for a host of compounding variables. And they found that typically embarrassment or discomfort was the primary reason uh, mentioned by women avoiding care. So effectively they're screening themselves out of screening because they feel uncomfortable with their own bodies. And I think it's a very human thing in which to feel very uncomfortable with our bodies. Uh, women in, in, in increasing proportions, males, are reporting dissatisfaction with our bodies whether you're overweight or not. So uh, really what we have is a population which is already seeking ridicule then having to expose themselves and feeling very uncomfortable with exposing their bodies, how they might be judged, how they might feel. And of course, this leads, or perhaps leads, to some of the health repercussions we're seeing. So when we see increased rates of cancers, which are associated with obesity, is it because of obesity or is it because of the fact that they're allowing things to reduce to certain levels where they should have treatment early? Psychological impact of verbal weight prejudice. Newmark Stanger, Diane Newmark Stanger and her group um, in the States have done some longitudinal work. Uh, it's probably some of the most comprehensive uh, longitudinal work that's been done. She looked at teasing about weight um, and verbalizations in the, in the playground and such. Um, and she found that those children who were teased, even though at baseline their BMI was not, they weren't overweight. Those that reported teasing about their weight, five years later, actually had greater body dissatisfaction, actually achieved overweight status, um, and were displayed binging and symptomology. So, it's suggesting in a way that either children have a very discreet sensor 
which allows them to see when a child, another child may be slightly overweight or might be angling towards becoming overweight, or it may be that um, this teasing is actually leading to more healthy behaviours and avoidance perhaps of physical activity and such. Eisenberg has found that there's increased suicide ideation in those who have been teased about their weight specifically. Uh, boys who have been teased about their weight uh, were 14% of them had attempted suicide, versus only 4% of those that have been teased. And Faith, uh, 600 children, again, just found that weight presence during physical activity led to lower participation. So why are we really creating this environment in this ill health that may be contributing to obesity? I don't really know. I know there's still a lot of um, a lot of conjecture as to what the link between health status and obesity is. And I, I think that at the high levels of obesity, we probably definitely are really close to between health and such. However, I, I do wonder, and we haven't got any data on what the impact of the stigmatisation is doing we're having on a lot of our behaviours, a lot of our physical responses, whether it be stress, our sleep patterns. I don't know if you've ever been teased or stigmatised or someone's bullying you, but it's difficult to sleep at night when you have been having that, and we know that sleep is associated with obesity. So there's a lot of damage downstream effects here that need to be explored. This is a, uh, a plot, which basically what we've got here is these black dots here represent overweight children. Three of these black dots are overweight children. White circles are normalized children. The numbers represent how many friend nominations these children represented. And the spread of where you are represents how centrally integrated you are with the social network. So they went across 132 different schools. And they asked the children at these 132 different schools to nominate who their friends were. Name five female friends and five male friends that you close with. And then they added up these nominations to see how many people had received um, nominations if you were an only white child versus how many had received nominations if you were a white child. And then how integrated you were. And what you can see is that out here we have a lot of overweight and obese children who either had no nomination, one nomination, one nomination, zero nominations, two, three. There's one child here who's, uh, who is, who does have a good number of uh, nominations, but nowhere near as much as what the white children do. So what we have here is some isolation, some social isolation for these children. What does social exclusion lead to? We know that um, we have impaired social uh, self-regulation under circumstances where we've been socially excluded or teased and stigmatized in some way. Bellmaster um, does some, I really love a series of studies where he gives people false feedback. Uh, he gives them false feedback about whether or not other people who they've recently worked with want to work with them again. So he'll randomly select people from a room and we've done these studies on race to prejudice as well. And we say, well, you know that group that you were working with, well, we asked to nominate friend nominations, and everyone got to write down a piece of paper who they wanted to work with again. But nobody actually nominated you to work with again. So what we're going to do is we're going to remove you from the study now. But could you please go into this room? And there's a room set aside which has food in it. And it has some cookies and high-density calorie foods and some healthy foods that have all been weighed ahead of time. And they look at what behaviours of those that receive the feedback say, nobody really wanted to work with you again. Or another mitigation they sometimes use is to say, well, we've done these assessments and it appears that you're not really going to be very successful in life. And they put them in this room. Great studies. You put them in this room and they then monitor what they eat over the next half an hour and what they choose to do. And they say, just stay in here for half an hour. When the study finishes, we'll have a debrief in the 
And they randomise people to have a bit of their included feedback, no feedback, all this. And typically what you find is that those who've been excluded will eat more high density foods and such and um, are unable to restrain themselves much on, on different tasks of their own the brain the control processes are deteriorating as well. And they found the deterioration in IQ performance and deterioration in test performance is similar similar as what happens with black populations as well when they when they create a when we create a false scenario saying you're going to be compared to white people. Typically in America black people perform less when you give them that feedback. So the social exclusion is not arbitrary, it leads to behaviours which then may lead to further problems. We also know that those that internalise all these attitudes that we have or that we see uh, in the general population regarding obesity and overweight, those that internalise it start to self-hate in a certain extent. They start to blame themselves for their condition, they start to say that their condition is, well, perhaps I deserve to be teasing, and there's a self-loathing impact that comes on it. And of course when this occurs, what they will then become is often vigilant for negative, negative global commentary when they look for people who are looking at this slightly differently and react to the So it becomes a bit of a vicious circle, we get reactions. Um, if you look at Sir Michael Marmot's work, who talks about social rank and status and its impacts on health and health outcomes, then we can also see how uh, prejudice and discrimination, social isolation, not quite And there's great work by Wilson and um, and checks obviously um, looking at um, baboon models and monkey models and even behaviours for those that are supportive versus government. I put this together, which basically um, I have a, a number of slides which would look more in a more detailed manner what the physiological cascades might be in, in determining our behaviours, but also in determining health outcomes for us. Um, but under chronic stress conditions, which may be through a, a perceived threat, mental threat, or attack, or stigmatisation. We know that we get a chronic stress response. So cortisol is activated and it's shown to inhibit insulin secretion and inhibit insulin binding. Thus, insulin sensitivity develops. We have a lot of blood sugars running around in our blood. We know that a lot of blood sugars running around in our blood is not good for us. It appears to say diabetes or certainly we can diabetes. Chronic stress leads to release of energy plus leptin. However, prolonged exposure to cortisol sees leptin resistance develop. So our hormone, which tells us we've had enough to eat, stops working. Cortisol response, uh, cortisol shown to increase um, neuropeptide Y, and as neuropeptide Y increases, neuropeptide Y in the brain is responsible for telling you that you're hungry. So it develops hyperphagia. It also acts as an anxiolytic, so NPY in the brain is excellent. In fact, those who don't have NPY, it's been shown to have a high rate of eating disorders. And um, so it develops hyperphagia, constantly wanting to, um, to eat and, and crave food. But then then that craving of that food progresses up into why that was again, and therefore you feel better about life in general because of the anxiolytic effects and the depression effects on those people. So it develops a vicious circle of feedback loop and reward feedback loop with it. And of course, cause off in cascades, can modify storage of this reflect. And this is just a basic model of you know, what I think is going on. I think the NICE released a, another form which showed a much more detailed process that we involved, but uh, when I'm talking more generally about this, I'm trying to say that it's complex. You've got a biometric factors, behavioral factors, and physiological response, and obviously psychological factors. So why do we dislike uh, people who like this? Where does this question come from? No one proposed reasons or proposed predictors of it. 
Age, typically the older we are, the less precious we have. That typically is across a lot of groups, with the exception of a, there's still a bit of a stigma regarding wartime conflicts, which might be had. So uh, elderly people in Japan still hate Japanese people and such, but generally speaking, the less precious um, declines as we get older, become more accepted. Males are more explicitly prejudiced. Um, we're not too certain whether or not males just overall have to say more than what females are and express what their, their feelings are or whether it's a true representation or not. And blacks are less explicitly prejudiced. So it's more acceptance for the black population, certainly in the States, for overweight. And you know some of the stereotypes that you ever watched in the news. You know terms like big bougie and things like that are accepted terms in the some would suggest that we dislike the best people because they're burden on society. And when you read the media, that's certainly what you get the feeling to say, well, he's going to cost the health system X million or billion dollars per year. So therefore, particularly in these times, when money is tighter, if we think they're stealing resources from us, then that's going to create conflict against that group. But of course, we always forget the 60% of the population that is either overweight or obese. So it's actually their own money they're stealing on the whole. Um, and then there's attribution theories in terms of, well, um, they they are bad people because they are lazy and they're gluttonous, and we, we have these attributions which are to And really, I think these are just justifications, perhaps, for allowing us to be prejudiced against this group of people. We're justifying why we don't like it. Social consensus, I think that um, the more we tolerate a prejudice, the more that we feel prejudice and uh, discriminatory sort of used. If we don't stop it and we don't say anything against it, then we actually condone it. And of course, in the media, it's fine to actually ridicule overweight obesity. It's constantly done. It's one of the last accepted forms of prejudice, which so they state. Um, and so it's, I think that that's really where the norm for prejudice is coming. Personality, which we'll look at in a second. Uh, have you heard of uh, social dominance orientation? at all, or authoritarian personality. They arose out of um, examinations of World War II and uh, what the Nazis did, and uh, their regimes. So we'll talk briefly about that, and we'll look at the social learning world because it has media influences. Right now we're going to do a task. And I'm going to get you guys to grab one of these girls here, if you wish to do one of these things here. And this is something called an implicit association task. Okay, yeah. How do I go past that? That's easy, isn't it? I'm used to dealing with students. Isn't it? <laughs> what I ask you to do is just just lay the form as it is in front of you. Don't open it. Just leave it there. Don't write on it, please. It's going to be a time reaction task, and once I tell you how to do the task, then we'll get it done. If anyone hasn't got a pen, I've bought a whole lot of spare pens. This is completely confidential, so. So nobody, um, nobody find out your school. You can take this away with you. Does anybody else need a pen down there? Have I not brought enough? I didn't expect this thing to turn up actually. Do you need a pen? So don't write anything on there. Try to get a stable platform if you can. This is a categorization task. And you've got to basically make pairings or associations based on what categories I have placed together in front of you here. 
So what you've got here is, in front of you we'll have a category called insects. And for insects we have insects, bugs, mosquitoes and roach. Do you all agree they're common terms or a category of insect? You do? Cool. Over here we've got flowers. Flowers got daffodil, daisy and tulip. Do you all agree they're common flower names? So that's another category we've got. Then we've got category for good words, which is good, wonderful, joyful, excellent. And we have a category for bad, which is bad, terrible, nasty, and horrible. So these are the four categories which are going to be have to be categorized. Now what I've done on the tops of your pages on each side of the column of words is the categories in which are to be viewed. So we have insects and good. Here we have flowers and bad. You may have it the opposite way around on yours. Doesn't matter. Just look at what the category theories are. So what your job is going to be is wherever there is an insect word, you should tick underneath this category theory. So you go tick alongside here. Where there's a word horrible, you tick here. Daffodil, that's a flower, it goes over here. Excellent, that's a good word, so that's over here. Roach, that's an insect over here. Nasty, over here. And so on and so on and so on down the page. You're really good, I like it. And passionate about getting into it. Now your job is, this is a reaction time task, your job is to go through this as quick, don't turn past the first page. Your job is to go through this as quickly as you can. This is a reaction time task. If you get through the first side, you get through this lot, you get all the way down to the bottom, quickly go up to here and carry on down the next one. So that's what's going to look like as you get out of the page. Just a quick dash. It has to be as lightning, as quick as you can go. Go as fast as you can, try not to make mistakes, don't correct any errors, don't skip any items, just a quick slash to the Now you're only going to have 20 seconds in which to categorise as many words correctly as you can. Does everybody understand it? You're from Oxford, of course you do. I don't have to repeat myself. On your marks, don't start. Get set, go. Quick as you can. Stop, 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 stop. Turn one page, one page only. Now you find these categories have been swapped around. So you'll probably have insects with bad or insects with good now. But the categories have been swapped around. So bad has been swapped over to the opposite side of the page and good vice versa. So you can see your category appearance on your marks. Get set, go. Stop, 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 pins up. Well done. Right. Now turn one page and one page only. Now what we have is we have two new categories. Our two new categories are words for fat people, which is fat, obese, and large, and words for thin people, which is slim, thin, and skinny. So these are the two new categories. These other categories remain the same, which is good, wonderful, joyful, excellent. Bad, terrible, nasty, and horrible. At the top of your page, have a look at what the appearings are. So you may have fat people and bad, or you may have fat people and good on one side. It's just the same as what we did before, except now we've got fat versus good. Okay. Ready? On your marks. Get set. Go. Stop, 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 stop. Pins up, pins up, pins up. Last page. Turn over. Now the pairings around the other way. Familiarise yourself with what you're supposed to do here. 
On your marks. Hit set. Go. Stop. 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 Who found that far easier to associate bad things with fat people than to associate good things? You physically couldn't move your arm across there in time or quick enough. There was a massive delay in there. And this is what we, we call an implicit or an unconscious association. So, from reading Harry Potter or from receiving all this information in the media, you've got a hardwiring system in your brain which is providing a bias or a preference towards associating good with fat. What might this mean? Maybe if somebody cuts you off in the car, you always try to look at who it is. is are they an old person? Are they a fat person? Let's say after a fat person, maybe something slips out of your mouth. Maybe something leaps into your head at that point in time. Maybe if you're playing, maybe if you're a physical educator and you've got Johnny, who's an overweight child, and Jimmy, who's a thin athletic child, you spend less time working with Johnny than you do with Jimmy without even noticing you're doing it. Johnny notices that you're not playing with him, and he notices it. Ever been in the bar if you're a male or female and an extremely attractive member of the other sex or that sex that you're interested in comes in and talks to all your friends but not you? No. <laughs> <laughs> you must have friends first. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, so when you score this task, what you do is you actually remove the amount of words that you got when bad was associated. So you take how many words you got correct, how many parents you got right. When bad was associated, minus the amount that was good. And typically, we find about nine items to 13 items, depending on what population you're dealing with, is the difference. Within 20 seconds, you can code nine more, or to nine to 13 more. Now, not everybody is the same, but on average, that is what you find. And that's the bias that we have. So, VC is a, we'll move on. I just want to do that to get you to think about these underlying things which may drive us. Obesity is a burden on threat to the economy and health, so the idea is that use of valuable health resources, which I've talked about, just world hypothesis. People, these people who are strong on the just world hypothesis which suggest that you get out of life what you put in, and that life is just. And therefore, if I work hard and I do well in life, everything will be fine for me. Well, obese people are sometimes seen as a challenge to that. And the way in which you, you deal with, well, I, one, you don't let much people Girls, when they ask young girls, they'd say, well, what would you prefer to be? Uh, would you sacrifice a grade at school for not being overweight? And girls typically would say, and they've done studies on this, showing that they would take a B grade rather than an A grade as long as they were overweight. So we know that people want to avoid becoming overweight because of the stigma like that which is associated with the negativity which is associated with it. And uh, we know that people high on the just world hypothesis have this black and white thinking such as, well, you get what you deserve. And therefore, they think that people who are overweight deserve it because they're lazy, gluttonous, and they put these attributions there. But I think, again, these attributions are just ways for us to justify what we're thinking and feeling. So I think they're post hoc explanations for what feeling we might have. Um, there's enough about that. Personality ideology, social dominance orientation, we know it's associated with it. Here's an item that assesses social dominance orientation. It's okay if some groups have more of a chance in life than others. So people who are strong in those beliefs typically prejudice towards all groups. Authoritarian personality, our country needs a powerful leader in order to destroy the radical and immoral currents prevailing in society today. The BNP probably had this in its speeches, I can say. Um, and if you're strong in that personality, and these, these would develop in a way to explain what goes on in Nazi Germany. 
Um, people they thought would be high in authoritarian personality, therefore they were following what Hitler did because they thought it was the right thing. It isn't the case, but that's what they proposed. But really, these are just conservative attitudes. So basically, we know that religiosity and uh, conservatism are also associated with high rates of prejudice. Does suggest that perceived like vulnerability disease may dictate this. So, if we're terrified about contracting diseases or we're hypervigilant about hypervigilant about getting a disease, then we may be more worried about obese people because it supposedly activates some underlying innate pathogen avoidance mechanism. Uh, I'm not much, I'm not big on on some of the evolutionary um, explanations, but that does. So my, my past experiences make me, leave, make me believe I'm not likely to get sick, even if my friends are sick. And I'll, people scoring high on these measures typically will show more prejudice than so what I say. Uh, Parker's done a study on this. It's a correlational survey. Measure the explicitly fat attitudes, add this perceived vulnerability to the disease, and they manipulated exposures to obese people on these images. Sure enough, what they found was that um, when they're presented with uh, Pathogen salient condition, such as you become affected and such, that there was elevated fat disease implicit test, much like you did then. There's a, a stronger association with fat disease when they activated the salient of the coming. I think the data is weak. This is the only study I've seen on this, and I've just done some measures myself and I haven't found similar strength relationships. So it's out there, but I think there are more ways to find this explanation. Let's go back to morality. I think this morality, this just world hypothesizing, I think has some merit. But more, more recently, they've started to look at morality in terms of is this an activator for disgust? Why do we become disgusted with certain groups? So, what's thought to be a basic, disgust was thought to be a basic and innate evolutionary feeling or emotion to prevent us eating or contacting diseasing, disease carrying things. Darwin suggested that something revolting primarily in relation to the sense of taste is actually perceived or vividly imaged. Uh, imagine, sorry, as disgust. So what is the problem with the notion of disgust as being an innate drive? Going around not putting things in your mouth that you shouldn't put in your mouth. Why does that fall flat on its face, too, isn't it? What do babies do? They stick everything in their mouth. They stick the dog in their mouth. So they don't really care. So if it's an innate drive, it should be there and they should avoid the dog. It's up to mum to say, no, don't shoot the dog. Then they will disgust you. More recently, disgust has been examined in terms of an emotion that was a social construction and with morality, so a social moral disgust. So we know that pedophiles will elicit, will elicit a disgust response in most people. When you hear about pedophile rings, it will evoke a, a visceral feeling of disgust and revulsion. But that's a social moral thing in other cultures. It, it, at certain, to certain ages, it's okay, and historically it has been okay. So therefore, that's a social cultural construction. Uh, and Simone Schnell um, has looked at embodied cognition and um, you know, draws on the David Hume, such as, which says that morality is determined by sentiment. I think that's the key message here. So what we determine as moral or not is what we get a gut feeling for. But I think the two are, it's a two-way street. Yeah, it's a very long publication, does, doesn't it? Yeah, prolific, <laughs> prolific, 200 um, It defines virtue uh, to be whatever mental action or quality gives a spectator the pleasing sentiment of approbation and vice the contrary. So perhaps disgust and the disgust feeling and morality 
is there, and maybe that's underpinning what we've got for business. And the link between disgust and morality, what we've found is that when you put people in a room where there's a disgusting smell in it, in the rubbish bin, they don't know it's there, but we randomise them to get in a, a, into a room where they fill out morality questionnaires. Is it okay to eat your dog? Is it okay to have sex with your cousin? Things like this, and make, make judgments about how moral that is. When there's a smell in the room, they make harsher moral judgments than when there's not a smell. When they evoke disgust in people, and then give 50% of them or give half of them a chance in which to go and wash their hands, <coughs> what they find is that those that had the chance to go and wash their hands after a disgust evoking stimuli don't display any greater morality. Those that didn't get the opportunity to wash their hands continue to make harsh moral judgments of people and on situations. So it's like you can actually wash the morality off your hands and the disgust off your hands. So none of that's been there, but when we look at when we look at some of the literature on body image and eating disorders, this disgust about our body, I don't wonder if it's about we had this discussed ourselves. This is a picture of cellulite. I literally did a search to show you cellulite of females. And of course, typically one of the comments I get when I do quick data and, and eating disorders and body image research is the girls go, well, sometimes you know, I catch a glimpse of my legs and my bum and I see the cellulite dimples and I go, oh, it's disgusting. And literally they describe it as a disgusting response. And so I'm trying to explore whether or not this disgust response that we get about our own bodies is also something that we feel about others' bodies as well. And so I cut this off because the picture is a little bit more revealing than you want it to be. Um, but here we have an enlarged version of it. What I might suggest here, and I really don't know, but what I'm suggesting here is that does physical appearance of abuse, the evoke of disgust, and, and a social moral disgust, uh, then attributions and justifications which we described really spring up from that emotional that feeling that we have. Um, the social morality follow on after this emotion it is consciously or unconsciously aroused. So post hoc reasoning for what it is. Crendel uh, has done scanning uh, techniques in the brain where they present pictures or uh, they get them to imagine an obese individual and it activates areas of the amygdala in the brain which is responsible for emotions, specifically the areas which are responsible for disgust or activating obese people. I'm going to race through some more of this. Vartanen has found a link a, between, because I am running out of time, uh, Vartanen has found a link between um, obesity, prejudice, and disgust. I think it's tenuous. Some of the measures he used were actually identical to for disgust, were actually identical to measures from the that attitude. So what I think is got more simple rather than specific. But we've decided to look at this as, as an experiment as well. So we examined this discussed very recently. I haven't actually analysed the data in any detail. Um, but we randomised people who received different discussed evoking stimuli. The students didn't know what the study was about. They came into a room and supposedly there was another study already being run, which was just finishing off. The person was complaining about the technical equipment and said, these damn images aren't showing properly. What's, what the hell's going on with these images? The, the new experiment that was running the study with the with the students, came in and goes, oh, what problems are you going to get this? And they go, look, can your students see any of these? And we either put up on the board different versions of disgust evoking stimuli or control conditions. And what we, we put up this, which was a normal weight woman, 
put up this, which is the disgust of opium stimuli, amongst other disgust of opium stimuli we put up as well. Um, this stimuli, which is on the obese person, so it's in a way the equivalent of the previous one. What did I find? Theoretically, the toilet and the obese person should evoke similar moral reactions and should re result in similar changes in terms of other measures we're doing if discussed related. We know the toilet's disgusting, and we know the maggot infested meats and the other images that we presented are disgusting. I then had a number of images of the obese people to see whether or not it evokes a similar response to what the discussed images do and different from what the What did we find? We found we got difference. We didn't get any cha changes on a number of measures of morality, two of which is it okay to eat the dog if you're really hungry? Uh, is it okay to have sex with your cousin? Things like that. You know, there's no royalty here. No. <laughs> um, <laughs> But what we did get is differences on our anti-fact dislike. And what's interesting is that we discussed the focus in the such the toilet, got a similar response and a similar spike in anti-fat attitudes as what the obesity images did. Normal weight remained the same. The normal weight images. It's a scale, sorry, from a scale from it's a scale from one to five. Okay, so each each time. Yes. So, a higher number represents more discrimination or more prejudice. Oh, this is a different This is a general version one. This is discussed. But for the fear of fact, these, these ones, it's like a different scale. So, they're uh, not common. But higher numbers represent more. Uh, and in this one, um, we've got an elevation in obesity for fear of becoming fat. Uh, and this one here, which was an overall measure of core disgust. So what you dis discuss sensitivity and propensity is in general life, how disgusted do you become by seeing, you know, standing on snail, how disgusting is that, things like that. And um, we actually got changes on the supposed uh, core disgust as well, in that people were less disgusted after exposure to the obesity and the disgust of the stimuli. So we're getting something. We're getting something in terms of the presentation And I think it's, it's, it's perhaps these underlying feelings that we get maybe driving our responses a little bit post hoc sort of Now, I told you I had a, a, a lot of data which I'm not going to have a chance to present now. This is a comparison study which I looked at whether or not how we feel about our bodies, our own bodies, affects how we feel about these people. And sure enough, what I found is that those that tend to make comparisons downwards to the case of other people's bodies feel better about their own bodies, they have more positive body image, but greater anti-fat attitude. It wasn't related to anti-gay sentiment, so it's specifically anti-fat. Those that compare themselves upward with models, uh, media stars, Cheryl Cole and such, they have greater dieting problems, uh, more likely to be believed and such, or have higher feeling and symptomology. Um, and they have a body image control. So it's a way of, maybe when we feel bad about our own bodies, perhaps we then, by comparing ourselves with somebody who we perceive to be 
uh, more sympathised group will have a lesser body than ourselves, that makes us feel better. So constantly being told, you should look like Cheryl Cole and not look like Cheryl Cole, is problematic for us. How do we deal with that? How do we boost our self-esteem? How do we make ourselves better? We compare ourselves with somebody else and they give us our jobs. Um, and that's pretty much finished. So any fat prejudice and discrimination is right, we know that, I've shown you that. Very little research in it. Harms the individual on a number of levels, whether it be physiological, once again, we haven't got any data on that, we need a lot more data for to around that area. I think a multidisciplinary approach is needed. I'm going to be working with bariatric surgeons and such in, um, in Australia, and but looking at the social mechanisms as well. And, uh, and there's not a lot of research looking at impacts on and the underpinning of functioning as well, which likely a lot of And that's me. I'm sorry I haven't gone through so much. Thank you very much.